Hey, hey, this is Allie, and welcome to the Allie Worthington Show. It's where we gather, learn, share our stories, and have a great time. Every week, I'll be chatting with a friend who I know, who I like, and I respect, and I want to learn something from. And after we have that discussion, we are going to have coaching time. So I'm going to be answering your questions about life, about faith, and about business. Welcome to the show today. I'm with the lovely Sarah May. Now, she is one of my first like blogging friends back in the day. You'll hear us talking about it back in the day when people didn't know like our real identities. And we were sure if we put a picture of our families or our kids on the Internet, things were going to be super dangerous. <laughs> I love this woman. I love her bravery. I love her vulnerability. She was a visionary in the space, you know, back when we were just kind of figuring out what this online space meant. But what she has done with this new project that we talk about today is she's just, she's telling her story and she does it in such a brave and vulnerable way. I think it's going to be really impactful for everyone that reads her story. So I'm excited for you to hear from her. I'm excited for you to join in the conversation with us to just hear like what it was like 10 years ago when we were figuring out What does it look like to write online? What does it look like to share a picture of ourselves on the internet? Is it safe? Like, it's crazy. It makes it, it makes me feel, it makes me feel almost elderly, (laughs) but she's great. You're going to love her. And after we talk with Sarah May, I'm sharing the best of coaching sessions through the end of the year while I finish my new book. The best of questions we're answering today are great. The live question is, what is your best advice for raising siblings that actually like each other? The faith question is, what do you do when you feel overwhelmed by what God has asked you to do? (laughs) Which is, gosh, 99.9% of the time. And the business question is, how can I get comfortable with the concept that I need to build my platform for myself and my business? Great questions. I'm so excited for today's show. Without further ado, here's my friend, Sarah May. Sarah May, welcome to the show. You are my soul sister because we are both women who are proud about the fact that we're not the best cooks. There's no shame in our game. <laughs> I'm sorry. Just the way that you start that, it just, that kills me. Way to, way to call me out on that. That's great. <laughs> you know, it's why I have friends on the show, because mm-hmm. I can't do that to a stranger. <laughs> I'd be like, I hear you don't cook. What do you have to say for yourself? Oh, my gosh. I do, but it's not super great, like you just said. And my kids are like, you know, chicken again, Mom, or Little Caesars again. And I'm like, yes, I'm working on it. So, you know, yeah, it's not the best. Things. Um, if, it, if I can make it in a crock pot, I'm good. Otherwise, you know, it's it's going to be interesting. It's going to be except that I don't remember to make anything in the crock pot until it's like four o'clock in the afternoon. And then I'm like, shoot, you can't make it in the crock pot. Mm-mm. For a while, we did a lot of noodles, but I bought the high-protein noodles, so I was like, it's just like meat. You're fine. We're going to have <laughs> pasta primavera, but it's high-protein, so go for it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So funny. Bless my children. Then, here's the thing. <laughs> All those boys are going to have very low expectations from their wives. That's you know? great. I feel like I feel like I'm I it's not that I'm doing anything wrong. I'm setting their wives up for future success. You really are. Mm-hmm. That's um, that's some strategy right there. Mm-hmm. So is there anything in your household that you know, okay, I can I I can kill it on this recipe. Oh. 
Well, it was really good when I homeschooled because my kids didn't know any better. And then they went to school and apparently they love the hot lunches at school. I don't know what that says about my cooking. That's that's a terrible sign. (laughs) That's a terrible sign. So um, I used to think I killed it with like homemade biscuits and homemade sausage and all the stuff I did when I was, you know, doing that stuff. Um, But apparently maybe not. So I can kill it with uh, homemade ginger snaps, which I know sounds like a really funny thing, but I have a friend who has an Amish recipe because I live in Lancaster County, which is like Amish land, and there's mm-hmm. these amazing homemade ginger snaps that are like the most perfect, soft, incredible tasting cookies, and I can make those really, really well. So you mentioned that you live in, is it Lancaster? Lancaster. Lancaster. If you don't say Lancaster, say Lancaster, people will be very upset with you. I understand that because I live in the South and we 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 have some weird pronunciations too. Yeah. So tell us about life and your family and everything about you. Well, I'm currently living in chaos because I have two puppies, which is psychotic. I don't know why we did that. We had been, <laughs> my, I know, seriously, my daughter, my youngest had been asking for years for a dog. And so mm-hmm. like we took our time. We tried to go through two different breeders. Both fell through. We finally got this dog that my dad's friend had had these lab puppies. So we, you know, we, we my point is we take all this time, we make mm-hmm. a decision, we get the dog. Then... Less than a year later, I see this really cute puppy, and I'm like, I have to take her home. And we just got her, like spur of the moment. And so now I have a five-month-old puppy and a, um, and a year-old 90-pound lab, and they oh are – Oh my gosh, they're so crazy. Like our life, it's like having a baby-toddler hybrid, two of them, maybe like twins – um, and the one of them has diarrhea right now. So that's been real fun. <laughs> this is real life. Man. But they're yeah. real sweet. Like right now they're curled up sleeping. Oh and basically when they're sleeping, they're my favorite. I I got to pet a 10 week old golden retriever last weekend and it had puppy breath. And I was like, oh, I need a puppy. But I remember oh. I have no ability to take care of a puppy right now. My, we have a golden who's 10 mm-hmm. and she's getting old fast. So I know I'm going to have to go through puppy stage again, but not looking forward Mm. to it. Yeah, we had our dogs in a kennel for like a week during my book launch week, and Mm -hmm. it was really quite wonderful. (laughs) 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 But I do like them. I really do. It's just, you know, it's, it's different. I get it. I get it. I know. I just, so that's really what's happening with my life. I'm basically consumed with dogs. My life revolves around them. Mm-hmm. Um, so other than that, I have um, my three awesome kids. So I mm-hmm. have a 10-year-old daughter. I have an almost 13-year-old son, and I have a 14-year-old daughter. So we are in this crazy teen-tween stage, which is really I love, actually. It's wonderful. Okay. So you mentioned book launch with the puppies. <laughs> <laughs> I love to hear from my friends the story of what's going on in your life, what was happening, what made you decide to write a new book. So your new book is called The Complicated Heart, mm-hmm. and I love the backstory. What's the backstory there? Yeah. Well, I didn't think I was going to write for a really long time. I was super burned out. But um, then my mom died, and I knew it was time to write our story. And there was such a roller coaster over the years of our relationship. And then with her death, um, I just remember I was with her on her deathbed and telling her, like, I'm going to tell our story. I'm going to tell of what God has done. So the book is the story of how I learned to love and forgive my alcoholic mother. 
but it's really for anybody with a tangled up relationship who's dealing with um, a difficult relationship, a tangled up relationship, manipulation, all of those difficult things. Um, And so that's what it is. So the backstory is that when, when I was 14, I moved in with my mom, not knowing that she was an alcoholic. My parents had divorced before I was a year old and my dad had custody. So I'd only ever seen my mom in the summers. And what made you, what made you decide to move in with your mom as opposed to stay with your dad? Yeah. Well, I did not have a good relationship with my stepmom. So that was a factor. Mm -hmm, And then also I felt like at 14, a girl should be with her mom. And Mm -hmm. again, I'd only seen my mom in the summers for like two months at a time. So she was fantastic. Like I thought she was the best. And so the thought of living with her seemed freeing and incredible. And I wanted it so bad. And so I just told my dad, you know, basically rebellious teenager, like, well, I can go and a judge would side with me. And so I'm going to move in with her. So he reluctantly let me go. And really quickly, it became apparent that something was wrong. She was not the fun loving mom that she had been in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, She was very, very cruel and very verbally and emotionally abusive and um, real sarcastic and knew how to cut you down until you felt like you were absolutely nothing. And at 14, you're already kind of insecure. Was she also a narcissist? I would say that. I wouldn't have known it then. But looking back, I can say it's very likely that she was Mm -hmm. a narcissist. Yeah, because she never could acknowledge her own part. And her sorries were only like, well, sorry if I, you feel hurt, you know, (laughs) you know, never real apologies. Although there's some pretty miraculous things that happened at the end where I feel like God um, really spoke to her and she was humbled. But, um, but yeah, so it was, it was the three years that I were in, that I moved and lived with her in Georgia were probably the most damaging, devastating years of my life. Like those three years impacted the rest of my life. And so um, the book is really kind of goes into what those three years looked like Mm -hmm. and subsequently how I learned how to then be okay again, (laughs) you know, and through becoming a Christian, through learning how to be emotionally and spiritually healthy, through setting boundaries, through, you know, all these different things. So it, it's a story and it really walks through that entire process. That's phenomenal. And one last, one more thing too, that I didn't say is that, um, because I wanted my mom to have a voice in the story Mm -hmm. because I I, I really believe that, you know, we all know this famous quote, right? Hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. Um, I really had an opportunity to sort of peel back the layers of my mom's life after she passed away because I got a hold of her journals. And I could, like, trace the thread of her pain all the way back to when she was a teenager, like a young girl, um, because she had journals from that far back. And to be able to watch sort of what happened and to see behind the exterior was was excruciatingly painful and also very helpful. And then, so I wanted her to have a voice in the book so that people could kind of see what's happening on both fronts, like what's going mm-hmm. on in my life, but then what's happening with her at the time this is happening, or what are some things that have gone on that have caused her oh. to lead to addiction. Yeah. So it's not an excuse for her behavior, but it's an explanation. And yeah. 
So she really has a voice in the story. So her journals are at the end of nearly every chapter. I think that, um, I think everyone has someone in their life that has hurt them or let them down because of addiction. So I feel like this book was not only very healing for you, Mm -hmm. it's going to be very healing for a lot of people. So you and your husband, happily Mm -hmm. married for 16 years, three Mm -hmm. beautiful kids. Mm -hmm. How in the world were you healthy enough, Mm -hmm. honestly, Mm -hmm. to go from being in a situation when you're younger with your dad and your stepmom that wasn't Mm -hmm. great? to a hellish situation with your mom in your teenage years, mm-hmm. how did you how did you not get married a bunch of times like you did? <laughs> Literally, because we well, tend to repeat those patterns. Absolutely, we do. So <laughs> there's a couple things there. First of all, in the sense of getting married a couple of times, I was a serial monogamous dater. <laughs> so I would be in relationships for like a year and a half, two years at a time. So I felt like, in a sense, I went through all these mini marriages and like mini divorces, which sounds really weird, I know. But like in high school, in college, like I had these really deeply serious relationships. And then after a while, I would like move on from that commitment because there'd be something better, something I thought was better. So I was repeating these patterns um, for sure, just not with an actual like ring on my finger. Um, But the, so there was a ton of wounds, a ton of lies, a ton of those things. And so I can sort of walk you through a couple of the real healing um, things that God did in my life. So I would say the first thing is that I came to know the Lord, which that's a whole, that's a whole story in and of itself. But it was, I'd like to hear it. Okay. Well, um, I had always sort of believed in God, but I didn't Mm -hmm. know Jesus or anything. My parents weren't believers. They didn't go to church. My mom claimed to know Jesus, but she didn't really live it out or anything. You know, she didn't go to church or anything. Um, And my stepmom was Catholic. So my only experience with church was going to a Catholic church, which I just, because we didn't have a good relationship, it just really didn't, I didn't understand anything. Mm -hmm. But when I moved in with my mom and at, you know, at 14 and I had, you know, gone through some pretty rough things with her, um, including telling her, you know, I'm going to kill myself and her saying, go ahead, I dare you and just different things. Um, An uncle came to visit and he gave me a cassette tape of contemporary Christian music. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea there was such thing as Christian music. I only knew about hymns. And so for whatever reason, I played this. I don't know why, probably because we didn't have like iPhones and the internet and I was probably yeah. bored and needed something to listen to. And I just remember this man singing about this Jesus that I didn't know. And I just cried out to God and I said, I don't know what this man is singing about. Like, I don't understand it, but I want it. Wow. And I feel like this was just the Lord wooing me mm-hmm. very tenderly. Like he's you know, even when we don't see him and we're in a pit, he's always with us. And so that was a pretty big thing. Another thing I failed to mention was when I was around nine years old, my sister was kidnapped by her dad. My mom, yeah, we have different dads. So my mom had dropped her off for a visitation and he never came back. And so we didn't know where she was for months. And I just remember praying every night to this God I did not know that we would find her. And like six months later, we found her. Um, out in another state or whatever, the police got her. And um, and that cemented in my little girl heart that there was a God who heard me. So there was that. Mm-hmm. Then there was this Christian cassette tape. 
And then the same uncle took us to a church. Well, I had no idea there was other churches. Like, so I didn't know who Jesus was, <laughs> didn't know there was Christian music. Didn't, you know, so for people who think that just because you're in America, everybody knows like Jesus yeah. and church. No, I had no idea about any of these things. Um, and you grew, and you were in Georgia? So this was in Georgia, right? Yeah. So I, and you'd think everybody in Georgia no, heard well, Jesus, Bible Belt and all. I mean, I probably heard the name, yeah. but I didn't understand anything. And so I walk into this one church, and I remember people were smiling and clapping. And I was like, what is this? Why are people smiling in church? <laughs> like, people don't smile in church. And I just had this thought w- that wouldn't have made any sense to my brain at the time. But I was like, the spirit is here. And I just remember I could understand what the pastor was saying. And so all of these little things, and then that uncle left, but all of these little things, you know, I felt like God was wooing me. Um, but I still had, you know, I still didn't understand it. I still hadn't pieced it together, you know, nothing like that. And then finally, after these three craptastic years, I decide to leave and get out of there. And so I moved back to Pennsylvania. It's there that I start going to this thing called Young Life, just because that's where the popular kids go to get out of their house on Wednesday nights. But, True. But, but right? <laughs> but this is where I start to hear about Jesus. And I'm starting to put the puzzle pieces together. Like, oh, there's this God, man, son, something or other that somehow died for my sins. Like what? And then, um, and I'm learning and I'm, and, and I get, they give me a new Testament and like, I'm reading it like crazy. Like I can't get enough of it. You know, like I'm underlining and just, I just want more and more and more. And finally in college, I get involved with the Navigators Ministry and it's my freshman year and I go to this retreat and there's this speaker and he says, what would you do if Jesus walked in the room right now? And I was like, well, I would hide. Like, Mm -hmm. Jesus wouldn't want to see me. I had so much shame, Allie. Like, nobody had to tell me I was a sinner because I knew. I knew that I felt like I was bad. I was gross. Like, I literally believed with all my heart that Jesus would not want to see me because I was just that filthy. And... I don't know if somebody said it. I don't remember. It's been so many years ago now. But essentially what I learned that night was that, no, Jesus knows everything you've done, everything you're doing, everything you're going to do. And this is why he died. And he loves you right now. And it just changed everything. I became such a Jesus girl. I mean, just that did it for me. I was his completely, wholeheartedly. The And so that's when I became a Christian Um, But of course, our sin habits and patterns don't just break automatically. I think we have this idea that like you become a Christian and yes, you have a changed life, (laughs) but it doesn't mean that like, you know, everything is like, oh yeah, all your sin is broken in a second. Like it's broken according to heaven. Like I'm righteous according to heaven, but on this earth, I'm walking it out and it's a process of healing and freedom and God dealing with our wounds and sin. So um I would go for long periods of time and be okay, and then I'd have to basically – I mean, I was an emotional disaster. I was a physical disaster, like just wanting to – if I would get lots of anxiety, I would have to go hook up with somebody, like just – just such a mess in so many ways. And then here's my mom that I don't live with her anymore, but I'm trying to figure out how to have her, this relationship with her because, you know, as this new Christian, I'm reading about like love people and forgive people and even love your enemies. And at this point I like hate my mother. Yeah. I don't really want anything to do with her. Um, but yeah, I sense God, you know, telling me to love and forgive her. And I'm like, well, I can't do like, how do I do that? I don't know how to do that. And so as God does, he gently, and this is just, it takes time, but he gently um, led me into, in, 
into relationship with people who could help me, and into areas of healing and freedom. And so there were some very, very specific things. So the first very specific thing was, I remember in college going to a mentor, and I went to her house, and I was like, uh... I'm emotionally psychotic. Like, I'm crazy. I'm angry. I feel like I can't control my emotions. I just felt wildly out of control, Allie. Like, just so – I didn't know what was up or what was down. My mom had gaslit me for years, which is when yeah. somebody makes you feel like you question your insanity. Like, you truly do not know what is true and what is not true. So, I had no foundation for truth. I had no – um, I literally felt crazy and I was in an emotional wreck because I didn't know what to do with my emotions. So I hated them. So I would simultaneously have like rage and then sadness and I would just freak out on boyfriends. And so I went to this mentor and I told her this and she walked me through this incredible, um, philosophy called core lies, which is just basically like we all believe we all have deeply embedded lies that we believe because of painful events in our childhood and mm -hmm. our life. And then we act out of those. And that is exactly what I had done. And so she had like put this mm -hmm. piece of paper in front of me and it said, and she started to write these phrases like I am bad. I am stupid. I am ugly. I am not good enough. And she just kept writing phrases until she was like, do any of these stick to you? And I was like, yeah, a ton of them. And I'm circling like, I'm not good enough. Like, I'm stupid. I'm ugly. These are things my mom had said to me. And then she took out, um, or then she got another piece of paper and she wrote things like, I must be good enough. I must be smart. I must be pretty. Because often what we do with our lies, and we do this subconsciously, is then we we come up with goals, we don't mean to do this, that we have to we have to do these things in order to fulfill what we think we're lacking. Mm -hmm. So, for example, because I thought I was so stupid because my mom made me feel like a complete idiot, I had to be smart. Like, I really wanted people to see me as smart and together. And when somebody made me feel like they saw the truth that I wasn't smart, I would freak out. So it's like a it's like a trigger. Like somebody steps if somebody steps on a landmine in your heart, um, you can like just fly off the handle with anger or you can get really depressed or really anxious. These are like red lights on the dashboard of a car saying, hey, something's going on here. What is maybe behind this? And so I'm really glossing over the whole coralized thing. It's developed more in the book. Great. But it was extremely powerful because I had to begin to see that, like, I had been believing lies, and here are some mm -hmm. reasons why I was believing the lies, and then having to replace the lies with the truth. And when we face our lies, it pushes up against the good news of the gospel, because the gospel is that Jesus died for all of these things. We don't have to be any of these things. He already is these things for us, and nobody has the authority to tell us who we are but God. And so it really is a matter of finding our identity in Christ and believing the truth. Like, are we going to rely on ourselves and what we think is true, or are we going to trust God and what He says is true? And so again, I'm glossing over this. It's really powerful, um, but it was hugely no, no. significant. What, yeah, what you've given us is great. Okay, good. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, this is this is gold. This is because important. we all have it. I mean, literally yeah. every single one of us has these core lies, and they're different. But we're all just trying to. Um, meet our deepest longings, yeah. which we have two of them that God has given us. We want to be unconditionally loved, and we want to make an impact on the world. These mm -hmm. are the two longings that each 100%. and every person has. Yep. And so we often fill them with um, 
goals, behaviors, and, and uh, instead of trusting the Lord. And we don't know we're doing it. Yeah. If you are um, really angry, like you find yourself flying off the handle, or you find yourself really depressed based on a situation or circumstance, not like chemical depression or something, or anxious, like very fear- fearful about something, that's what you pay attention to. If you want to figure out your lies, pay attention to those things because mm-hmm. they will lead you to what is underneath that. So, so anger is a blocked goal. Depression, I think, is when you feel like you can't meet your goal at all. So anyway. And your goal can be as simple as a happy family or... You know, it doesn't. It, I think when we hear goals, we think achievement and career and work. And they can but, be that, but right. Yeah. I'm not talking. I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm not talking about good goals because goals are neither good nor bad. Right? Like they're neutral, mm-hmm. so it doesn't. Yeah. So a goal, and again, these goals are subconscious. Like we don't know we're doing this. Mm-hmm. So my goal could be: you are going to take me seriously because my mom never took me seriously. So now I have this unconscious goal. Like I have to be taken seriously. And um, I demand subconsciously that you take me seriously. And when you don't, all of a sudden you have blocked my goal and I'm going to now freak out on you. None of this is rational. Like none of this is something we're doing on purpose. (laughs) It just happens, which is why we can pay attention to those triggers and then go, whoa, 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 what, what is happening? What, what longing um, am I trying to meet? What event happened that is causing this? We can usually trace it back to an event or something said to us or um, a circumstance. And then what belief, what goal, what behavior, and then what emotion is coming out. So that, I can't even talk anymore about it because it's so thorough and so much and so incredible. Um that it would take up your entire show. So I'm going to move on to the next thing. That, so anyway, God helped me to begin to see the truth. Mm-hmm. And then um, I had to learn how to set boundaries uh, with my mother. And so how my first experience with learning that was, I was in a college class. I wanted to be a counselor. And so I was in my human development and family studies class, and we had a guest lecture, and it turned out he was an addiction counselor. And I ran up to him after class, and I said, I don't know how to deal with my mom. Like when we talk on the phone, I just, we can never get off the phone with each other. We're in this terrible pattern. And no matter how much I explain myself, like she doesn't hear me and it just goes into a crapshoot. And he Mm -hmm. said, if I have a ball in my hand and I throw it to you, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to catch it. And he said, and then what? And I said, well, then I'm going to throw it back. And he goes, okay, so you've decided to play the game. Mm. And I was like, oh. And he goes, if you don't want to play the game, stop throwing the ball back. And this was my first experience with the concept of boundaries, which is Mm -hmm. just basically like what you will and will not tolerate in your life. And so very practically with my mother, what I had to do and what he suggested was when we start to get into that rhythm on the phone to just say like, hey, mom, like someone's at the door, got to go click. Don't wait for a goodbye. Because if you're in a relationship with in a toxic relationship, you know, it doesn't work that way. (laughs) like keep you on the phone or keep you at their house or whatever it is. You have to literally just go. And so I would just be like, sorry, mom, got to go. Click. Sorry, mom. Someone's at the door. Click. Like just whatever it took to just get away. I had, that is what I had to do. And then the next phase of that was I had to take several months away from my mom. I took like six months off from her where I didn't talk to her, see her or anything because I had to gain clarity. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so part of gaining clarity was to set a boundary Um, where I just didn't see her or talk to her because I could not get clear in my head. I could not understand the truth. I still was struggling with feeling like I was crazy or didn't know the truth. So I had to separate completely. 
And I feel like I just read some study. I'm reading this wonderful book called Betrayal Bonds. Um, mm-hmm. And there was some study that talks about how your brain, if you are wrapped up in a toxic situation, like you literally do have to get away so that your brain can reformulate or something like that. Uh, and that's true for family. It's true yes. for work. Yep. Um, you know, because I've had the experience of working with someone who's highly toxic. And mm. there's there's no way. There's mm. no way to get healthy when you're under the thumb of someone that's abusive. Oh, that's right. You cannot. I mean, mm-hmm. you can't. Like, how can one emotionally unhealthy person help another emotionally unhealthy person? Like, you exactly. can't do it. So, yeah. right. So I had to separate. So that was, and again, I developed this more in the book, but that I had to learn how to set boundaries so that ultimately I could love her because I knew God was calling me into a relationship with her. And I'll get to that in just a minute because not you're not always called into a relationship with somebody who's harmful. But in yeah. this situation, God was doing that. And so I had to trust him. So anyway, so he took me through dealing with lies, replacing with the truth, taught me how to set boundaries. And then after these things started to happen and I started to gain clarity and some emotional health, I then realized that underneath all of my anger, it was really, really sad. Like, I just Mm -hmm. wanted a mom. All of a sudden, I was so jealous. Now I'm in, like, my junior year of college, and I see my friends who can talk to their moms about boys or can cry to them or talk with them and or watch movies with them, and I don't have any of that. And so now I'm just really sad, and I desperately want a mom. And so I take my mother issues, and I go to a counselor. Again, God kept bringing people in my life. Like, this is what He does. He gently and tenderly Mm -hmm. leads us towards healing. Like we, we heal in community. And so he took me to this counselor and I'm waiting for her to say like, you know, it can get better. And like, you're going to have a mom and shouldn't say any of those things. She says, you need to mourn the loss of a mother as though she died because the grieving is the process of facing reality and letting go of expectations. Wow. And I was like, you know, but what that, and then that is a whole other process because to face reality is just to face the truth. Like my mom was not a mom. Mm -hmm. Now the caveat is that we don't ever mourn the future because we don't know what God is going to do there. That's where hope is. And so we don't ever want to mourn what God may yet restore. But the reality in that present time was that she was not a mother. And I had, to, I had to face that truth, that reality. And to do that, we have to grieve. I had to grieve as though she died um, and let go of the expectation that she would be a mom. But what that did is it allowed me to forgive her for not being the mom that she should have been. And then it allowed me to love her because I began to see her as a person just made in the image of God in need of love, and God was calling me to love her. But I did not expect her to be kind. I did not expect her to act like a mom. I did not expect anything of her. I had to release her from that. And that is very painful, and it is not a one-time thing. This is a process you go through, but it did allow me to stay in relationship with which God wanted me to do. So he, so these are all the things, Allie, that God was doing to not only heal my little girl heart and to help me to get emotionally um, and spiritually healthy, because we don't just do it for ourselves. We do it so that we can actually love others well. In case you haven't noticed a theme, each aspect of my healing and freedom came by God bringing another person into my life. I didn't do any of this on my own, and we can't. And so you have to have other people. That's beautiful. I've 
I, I realized looking back on it that God has brought certain people in my life. Mm-hmm. And, and in the beginning, I just thought, oh, well, she's great. We're becoming mm-hmm. friends. But these are people who ended up being rather prophetic mm-hmm. because I was mm-hmm. about to go into a bad time. Mm. And I can look back and go, oh, God's so good because he brought me, he brought me wise women. He brought me yes. prophetic women. He brought me women who were going to hold my arms up when I wasn't strong enough to. Yes, that's mm-hmm. so good. Oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah. And I, I remember, I think it was Catalyst 2012. I met somebody in a green room. Didn't mm-hmm. even really remember meeting him. He went home to Houston. Mm-hmm. And told this woman, you you need to be friends with this woman I met. So we got on the phone, mm. and we've been friends ever since. And mm. she's one of my closest friends in the world, but she's one of those people that God brought into my life because it was like, okay, Al- Allie's about to go through some hard stuff, and mm. she's going to need strong, wise women around her. I couldn't have done it without community, even, even though it's community that lives in another state. Yeah. Yeah, because sometimes yeah. in our daily life, in our neighborhood, sometimes even in our church, we we still need community from other places. And that's one reason I love the internet. Yes, me too. Because we can literally find amazing people who live on the other side of the world or the other side of the country. Mm-hmm. I was doing audio memos and boxing with women this morning. And, mm-hmm. and you know, they, we can't get better in community. Absolutely not. No. And when people say, well, how do you find your good friends? Like, how did you do that? Like, I don't have anybody. First of all, sometimes you do. You have to sometimes go out of state. One of my best friends lives in a different state. Like, Mm -hmm. I have traveled uh, to meet people. I I remember, (laughs) Allie, this is so stalkerish. But um, do you know the Brookshires? Um, Do you have to know Emily Rose, Breezy Brookshire? Okay, well, anyway, this was when I was involved in this whole, like, stay-at-home daughter movement and Mm -hmm. I was going through a period of some legalism and um I used to sense the legalism from you like in 2000 when we met I was like because I fall on the side of grace and I was like she's a little legalist well I thought I I was on the side of grace but totally was not anyway that's a whole (laughs) we don't we don't want to go to that lockbox because that's I don't mean to call you out but I see you're not the only one (laughs) okay I've seen in the last 11 years since we Mm -hmm. met Mm-hmm. How I just seen the transformation in yeah. Well, so, God really so, worked. Yeah, there was about a few. Yeah, there was a few years, and it's because I thought that what I saw was meat. Like I want meat. Like I, you know, because I'd grown up in such chaos that I tended yeah. to go towards the extreme of um, anything that was so put together. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, and um, and actually, you see it the other way too. Sometimes you'll see somebody grow up in such a strict conservative home that they really go to an opposite extreme as well because mm-hmm. of what they experience. So. That's a whole psychological thing, but whatever. The point was, I had found this family online and they had lived, you know, several states away. And I was like, I love how you're raising your family. Can our family just come and like stay with you for a couple of days and watch you? <laughs> no, you did not. <laughs> totally did it. What? What? We what? drove nine hours, 12 hours, we went to Indiana, Pennsylvania, and Indiana to, they were like, sure. So we didn't know these people. We'd seen them on the internet. like, mm-hmm. And they could check you out from the they internet. They could check me out, right. Works. Yeah. So we drove, and they became such dear friends. We ended up going out two years in a row, and then they came here and stayed with us. But we became wow. such dear friends. And then they've gone through such a hard time. Like, I've watched them go through this incredible process of grace and what the Lord's doing in their lives. And then, sadly, like, the girls and um, the 
father died tragically mm-hmm. very quickly through a very fast cancer. And it was so heartbreaking. And we were just, you know, we knew them now. Like we knew this family and we loved them. And like we still see them. I just saw them last year. And all because like we reached out, which sounds crazy, but like we reached out and we were like, can we just meet you? And that's, I mean, I know that's insane, but, um, but things like that, like we have met the best friends through the conferences we've gone to, you mm-hmm. know, that life, oh, you know, yeah. the conferences we've gone to just reaching out and you can't stay isolated. You can't expect, I'm not saying God can't bring somebody to your door and knock on your door and be like, Hey, let's hang out. Let's be best friends. But that's not really normally how it happens. You have to like, you put yourself go out there. You have yeah. to go looking. It takes work. This is work. But the work ends in such wonderful fruit of, of good kindred friendship and really special relationship and healing relationship. And so if you don't have that in your life, you got to go after it. Put yep. yourself out there. Go after it. So good. So like I said, I've been watching you on this journey um, and so proud of you. So proud of Thanks. the work you're doing because you do, especially with your podcast of uh, the, uh, the Complicated Heart. Mm-hmm. You do. You talk about the tough things, abortion, yeah. healing, and anxiety, and depression, and trauma. Mm-hmm. It's needed. These conversations mm-hmm. are so needed, especially in Christian circles, yeah. because I think so many people have been damaged by the message that once mm-hmm. you get saved, like you said, everything's fine. Right. That. Right. If for some reason you have depression, well, you don't love Jesus enough. Yes. If you've, you know, if you've done all these things and if you're still struggling, it's, you know, uh, obviously you haven't repented from your sin or you would be all better and everything would be better. Or if you're in a sin habit. Like if you're in a, if you find that you need to go and have sex with somebody when you're lonely, if you are struggling with um, taking, some kind of drug because you can't get through your days. Uh, yeah. And I'm not talking about a, you know, a prescribed medication. <laughs> like there, the opioid addiction is huge, um, yeah. and it's huge with moms. And um, sadly, that's a, a sad. A lot of addiction is from prescribed medication from over. Yeah, so it can yeah. start with prescribed. That's yeah. right, but then it usually goes into um, just. It just spirals. Any, you know, yeah. wine, moms, you know, we see this all the time. Like, yeah, just getting my other glass of wine. Listen, I love a glass of wine. I'm not talking about that. But at some point, be careful that it doesn't become your escape. But these are the things that you can be a quote unquote good Christian girl or you can love Jesus and still fall into these sin patterns because it's it's really, it's an alert that something else needs to be healed deep down. There's probably a trauma or a pain or a longing or something Um, that's deeper than what is on the surface there. And so So we need to have compassion when we see these things instead of just like, you're sinning, you're wrong. Well, maybe that's true, but also how can we walk alongside people in process? So good. I love that. I love that so much. Now, it's it's always fun for me on the show to go from really heavy topics to be like, and now we're going to talk about cosmetics. But yeah, that's but that's good. Gonna, it's we my need show. That. It's my show. Yes. It's what I do. So you know, do what I you ask, want. I ask all my friends the fun questions. So number one, what's your Enneagram number? Okay, I have been convinced by mm-hmm. myself and others that I'm a four Makes with sense. a three wing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However, every time I see those memes with like, this is how a, you know, each number would react to something every single time I'm a nine. 
So I don't know if fours and nines have something in common. I don't even know anything about the nine, except that it's called the peacemaker. That's fascinating. And you know what it could be? I don't don't know the Enneagram for four and nine well enough to say this, but for every Enneagram number that we are, we act a certain way when we're really secure and a certain way when we're stressed. So Mm. me as a seven, when I am stressed, I will exhibit the qualities of an unhealthy one. When I'm feeling secure, I'll, I'll exhibit a lot of the qualities of a very healthy five. So maybe when you're feeling really secure and healthy, you go to the healthier parts of nine. That makes sense. Yeah. I'll have to look into that because I'm super curious because everything else in my husband, especially is like, oh my gosh, you're totally a four. Okay, great. Second question. What is the song that you have on repeat? Okay, I'm super basic, but I have been listening to the new Taylor Swift album, and I really love the song Paper Rings. Love it. It's super duper fun. Do you know it? Mm-hmm. Okay, Even though cool. I have I just boys. really like to blast it. It's super fun. <laughs> That's a great I one. love it. What about a movie or a show that you love right now? Okay, admitting this might cast some judgment upon me. Um, and I'm not even saying I love it. It's just I've been sucked into it. I've been watching The Politician on Netflix, oh, I which I still have it. not figured out the point of it at all. Like, I'm almost done. And I'm like, what was the filmmaker trying to communicate? Because I have no idea. I don't even know what characters I'm supposed to like and not like. It's so bizarre, but I'm I'm totally sucked in. I love it. Okay, I'll take that recommendation. Now, what thing or product do you love right now and you've recommended it to a friend? The Tingle Razor. I think it's called Tingle or Tinkle. Everybody tells me Tinkle, which is so unfortunate, Tinkle. Well, I don't even buy that one. I buy like the another brand, but it's the same thing. I just don't know the other brand's name. So sorry, other brand out there that I could be promoting. Um, but same thing. I do. I love it. I sit in bed. I shave my face. It's amazing. My husband can't stand it. He's like, why? Can you just not? And I'm like, yeah, but feel how smooth I am. Okay, but here's my question. So, Does your hair grow back mm-hmm. like a beard? No, that's no. I mean, I wouldn't recommend starting when you're like 14. Like my 14 year old keeps asking me to let her do it. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, no, I don't think that's a good idea. I mean, I'm going to be 40. So I'm kind of like, if I grow a beard, I'll just keep shaving every day. (laughs) I've reached that point. But by the end of the day, you don't have any little stubbly hairs growing in? No, but even if I did, I keep I keep those razors with me everywhere, literally upstairs, downstairs, like in my kitchen, in my purse, in my car. And anytime I feel anything, I just whip that thing out because you know how like you'll have like a stubborn little pokey chin hair. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had this before I did the shaving thing and it was too short for a tweezer to get, but it'd be like driving me nuts, you know, mm-hmm. or I would do the nair, but you have to wait like so much. This is so great. You just whip it out and do it. Okay. It's amazing. Um, I'm, I'm going to be tinkling. Terrible. terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, last question. What are you excited about these days? I'm really excited about the book and the message. I have felt such um, motivation and excitement and perseverance in this message that I've never felt before ever in my life for anything. Like, I just want to keep talking about it and I want to shout it from the rooftops. And I just feel like it's the thing I love right now. I'm most excited about it. Tell everyone where they can find you and where they can find the book. Yep. Well, you can find me at sarahmay.com, which is S-A-R-A-H-M-A-E.com. I'm on Instagram at Sarah May Writes, And you can find the book anywhere books are found. But if you go to the complicatedheart.com, it's real easy to find 
right there and the complicatedheartpodcast.com where I talk about all these things on my podcast. So there you go. Love it. Well, thanks so much for joining us. This has been great. How great is she, right? I'm giving away copies of her book. You know the drill. Take a screenshot, tag me, tag her, put it on Instagram or Facebook or um, Instagram stories and tag us and you will be entered to win one of her books. We're giving away quite a few books this week. Okay, let's move on to the coaching segment of the show. My first question is a life question from Hannah. And she said, what's your best advice for raising siblings who like each other? I like how Hannah phrased this question because she didn't say, how do I raise siblings who love each other? Because I think most siblings do love each other, but she asked how to raise siblings who actually like each other, which of course is a completely different thing. I think a lot of the responsibility on this, to be quite honest, is with the parents. Now, I am not somebody who believes that parents get to just kind of mold and shape their children into whatever they want them to be. I wish. I have five sons. Each of them is completely different than the other. You know, they just, poof, were born that way from day one. However, I do think a lot of sibling rivalry is caused by some accidental things that parents do. Here's an example. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who was getting my advice on some parenting topics. She had one child under 10 who was just kind of wild and would tell her no to her face and disobedient, disrespectful. And I was like, listen, you got to get that under control when a child is younger because it's only going to get worse in the teenage years. Things don't just magically get better. If you have a kid who's that little, who disrespects you and won't obey you, your teenage years are going to be out of control. You got to get that under control. So She was telling me about the situation with her child where she kind of got it in, got it in check. But then in the middle of that situation with her child, she brought in her other child, was praising her other child. So this kid who had just been punished is watching her and her other child kind of have this beautiful moment together and um, almost kind of rub it in her face, right? So I was like, listen, I'm glad you got it under control, but you can't put the kids against each other because it just makes one child dislike the other child. So what we want to do is we want to make sure that we're never setting up our kids against each other. We never want to point out the fact that someone's misbehaving, but someone over here is so great, right? Because that just makes them feel worse and it makes them feel anger toward the kid that you're praising. We want to praise our kids when they do well, but we don't necessarily want to praise a sibling for doing something when the other kid is in trouble for doing the opposite. So if you're in active conflict with one child, if you're disciplining them, if you're fussing at them, you're not going to look over and praise the other kid in the middle of that. That just mixes all the messages. And it makes that one kid who's getting disciplined just really hate their sibling in the moment. So you want to deal with the behavior that the child is having and stay focused on that. And later on, when you're alone with the child that wasn't misbehaving, You want to praise them for their good behavior. You know, tell them how much you appreciate the way they do certain things. Help them recognize that their good decisions are going to, it's going to make their future brighter. Just help, you want to help kids connect the dots between their good decisions today and good things that will happen to them in the future. One of the most important things that we can teach our kids is that when we do the right thing, when we make good decisions today, when we develop wisdom when we develop skills to make good decisions, our future is going to be better. And if we don't, 
it's not going to be. I mean, that's not rocket science, but it's up to us as parents to connect those dots. Another thing I did when all the boys were little is I never chose sides in the middle of their little disagreements that they had. So if I came in the room and they're arguing about something, I was not going to be the one to decide who's at fault. Because if I didn't see it all go down, I'm not going to come in after the fact and say, you're the good guy in this situation, you're the bad guy in this situation. Of course, we never use that language, but that's essentially what we're doing. We're choosing sides. (laughs) Because I don't know for sure. And there's too much risk of damage in the relationship that you have with your kids and that your kids have with their siblings if you come in and start announcing who's right and who's wrong. I used to always tell the boys that, hey, it takes two to tango. And in any argument, in any fight, I'm sure one of them was obnoxious. And then one of them threw the first punch. I get it. I'm sure the obnoxious one probably deserved it. But it's not my job to come in and decide who's right and who's wrong. If they start throwing down, they both get punished if they can't stop fighting, period. So sometimes that looked like both of them running laps around the house. Sometimes I would make them, oh, this is great. Sometimes I'd make them touch their noses together, and then they'd have to compliment each other. So imagine like looking face-to-face at each other and thinking of a, a genuine compliment to give the other boy. Hilarious. Um Sometimes they just had to go to either side of the room and look in the corner until they got tired and decided playing together and, you know, bearing the hatchet was better than staring at the corner of the room. But if I, as their mother, always jumped in and, you know, was the one who said, oh, you're the good guy, you're the bad guy in this situation, it would have set up long-term resentment between the kids. Because here's the thing, you're always going to have a kid that's really emotionally intelligent and can manipulate the situation. And you're going to think that kid's innocent when really that kid's probably the one that threw the first punch or stole the toy or did something obnoxious. This just was my way to protect myself from getting tricked by the kids. So I believe every child should be treated as an individual. But when it comes to parenting siblings, it's really important for us not to put them up against each other, not to come in and announce one's good and one's bad, one's guilty, one's innocent just make sure that we're creating an environment where we truly feel like we're all in this together. So Hannah, I hope that helps. That's, that's the way I did it. And so far, so far, I think it's good, but I will just in all transparency, tell you a story. My eldest two, Jack and Justin, Justin being the older, Jack being younger, Justin's now sophomore in college. Jack is a senior. I really, back in the day, thought I was a great mom and I thought that they never fought. And every once in a while, you know, I'd have to come in and break something up. But for, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years, they always were wrestling with each other. And my big thing is I just didn't want them to be like fighting and and angry. And so I'd walk in the room and go, okay, are you guys happy fighting or angry fighting? And they would both go happy fighting. And I'd say, okay, carry on. Don't break anything. I didn't find out until just a couple of years ago that they were both angry every single time. So they didn't get together and say, oh, let's just tell mom we're happy fighting and we're just wrestling. They both just did it because they were so <laughs> they were so mad at each other. Apparently, they wanted to finish the fight. So again, I mean, I guess that when I look back on it was successful because I was never brought in to say one was innocent and one was guilty. They were just, you know, they're just being boys with a lot of extra testosterone. So that's how I did it. I hope it helps. Now, My second question today is a faith question from Lindsay, who said, 
What do you do when you feel overwhelmed by what God has asked you to do? This question kind of reminds me or makes me think of the question a couple of weeks ago where I was teaching that God does give us more than we can handle because we're meant to depend on Him. I'll tell you, I personally feel overwhelmed by what God asked me to do all the time. I get overwhelmed by answering theological questions here on the show. I get overwhelmed when my pastor asks me to do a Sunday service on a certain topic. I get I get overwhelmed every time I begin to wrestle with a new topic for a book. I mean, that's what I'm going through right now is asking God for, for clarity and for wisdom and for understanding and just the ability to share what I need to share and teach what I need to teach for the women that are going to read this next book. And I'm overwhelmed by it because none of these things I can do in my own strength. The day I stop feeling overwhelmed by what God has put in my hands to do is the day I think that I realized I've stopped saying yes to Him. So feeling overwhelmed, feeling inadequate, feeling insecure, feeling nervous, feeling not good enough, I think they're all normal. We only do great things for the kingdom when it's the Holy Spirit that's working in us. Now, in our human form, we have, we have stuff we have to do. We're the ones who need to get up. We're the ones who need to do the work. We need to not let fear slow us down. We need to not get stuck in our own heads. We need to not take ourselves out of the running before we even get a chance to compete. We got to do this work. But it's the Holy Spirit that takes where we are now in our human form, feeling completely overwhelmed with whatever God has put in our hands to do, and makes it all work. Because whatever God has given you to do, Maybe it's your job, your ministry, the dream that's on your heart, taking care of your family, volunteering at church, taking care of your parents, just doing things that are outside of your comfort zone. It's important work, and it's never necessarily going to feel easy. If God has given it to you to do, He's going to give you the strength and the wisdom and the resources and the ability to do it. And like I've mentioned before, don't let discomfort trick you into thinking that you shouldn't be doing something. Feeling uncomfortable, having a little bit of discomfort, it's just a sign that you're doing something new, that you're stretching, that you're doing something that's beyond your natural capability. And that's important. So my encouragement to you is that you keep going, that even when you feel overwhelmed, you ask for that fresh filling of the Holy Spirit to give you exactly what you need to go to the next level. Because if he has called you to do it, he will equip you to do it. Okay, the last question today is from Lisa, who said, how can I get comfortable with the concept that I need to build a platform for myself and business? This is a great question. I hear this question all the time. And y'all, I could probably answer this question every few months and give a different version. I mean, it's all the same heart, but I have so much to say about this. So in short, I'll keep it short today or else I could talk about this for an hour. Your platform is simply the ability that you have to reach people. That's through your website, your email list, your podcast subscribers, your YouTube subscribers, your social media channels, the networks you're in, the communities that you're part of. All these things add up to your ability to reach others. A platform is simply your stage that lets you talk to people, that lets you reach them with your products or your services. And whatever you do in this world, whether you are a creator, a business person, you know, whatever it is, you have to have a platform. If your goal is to write a book, you have to have a platform to be able to sell it to people. Publishers alone can't do it. I remember 
gosh, it must be 12, 14 years ago now, I used dial-up internet and Google searched one day, how do you get a book deal? And the answer was depressing. The answer said, if you're not famous, infamous, or well-connected, it's not going to (laughs) happen. So I wasn't any of those things, thankfully. Well, I mean, well-connected would have been nice. I wasn't. I was a stay-at-home mom. I I didn't have any business connections. I wasn't involved in any community. I mean, we were moving around every two or three years. I hardly had any friends. Um, but the next search result after that response was, if you have a blog and can build an audience and show publishers that you have something that people want to hear, then you can get published. So my next Google search after that was, what's a blog? (laughs) And that's what started me writing. It's what started all of that because I realized 12, 14 years ago, I can't remember what year it was right now. I realized that I had to have a platform. There was no way to get around it. I had this dream in my heart. I had a calling that I felt like was from God. But it was 12 years ago. But I had to do this because it took me 10 years. It was 10 years to the month that I Googled that, that I launched my first book. So I Googled that in 2006, launched my first book in 2016. So that was 12 years ago. But I'll tell you, those 10 years seem like nothing now. And it's a drop in the bucket. And I'm so glad that I spent the time building the platform and honing my skills so I could be able to do it. But that's off on a tangent. So maybe it's not that you want to publish a book. You know, maybe you're a health coach or a life coach and a fitness coach and you want to find more clients. You have to build the platform to be able to reach them. Anything that we want to do requires a platform. And remember that I said a platform is simply the ability you have to reach people. Website, email list, podcast and YouTube subscribers, social media channels, the networks that you're in, the communities that you're part of, all these things together are what makes up your platform. So you build your platform because you have something important to bring to the world. Maybe it's your creativity, maybe it's your wisdom, maybe it's your products, maybe it's your services, but whatever it is, you have to share it with the world. You owe it to build that platform for it. Platform building isn't about creating a big idol of yourself and your success. I mean, yeah, some people do that. Some people's Instagram feed is is only professionally shot photos of themselves looking beautiful all the time. I get it. That's essentially just a platform celebrating yourself. That's not what I'm talking about. If you're listening to this today, I know enough about you to know it's not what you're about either. This community of listeners are people who want to do things well, who want to bring good things to the world, who are not out there striving to promote themselves and build their own ego, but to do things to make the world a better place to help people. So think about building your platform as a necessary part of making the world a better place. You have to do what you have to do to get your message out. And if you have great things to bring to the world, You're actually doing a disservice to people by not building your platform and letting other people know how your product or your services can help them. Don't be afraid of platform building. It's not about building yourself up. It's about letting more people know that you can actually help them. I'm so glad you're here. I'm grateful for the time we have together every week. I want you to know that I believe in you. I believe in your dreams. I believe you're making an impact on this world for good because the women who listen to this show are women who see what God has for them and you go for it. 
So I'm so happy you're here. I'm happy to be a part of your week. I'll be back with you next Monday, and I hope you have a great day.